This is our last episode of season one. Throughout this series, we've heard several historians say that this is an unusual time. Something is changing right now in the way that Americans view race. The Black Lives Matter protests in spring and summer of 2020 felt different from the ones that came before. And a lot of people, particularly a lot of white people, are asking how to help, how to be an ally. It's one thing to believe that, yes, black lives do matter, but what does it mean to show up? Sometimes it's hard to know when you're actually helping and when you're just adding to the noise. Untextbook producer Daniel Arditi was asking himself a lot of these questions in the spring of 2020. His social media feeds were full of hashtags and calls to action over George Floyd's death. After everything that happened this year, there was a lot of support for the movement on social media from people that hadn't supported it before. And I was hopeful, but I also recognized a lot of like misguided allyship, ineffective allyship, like put Black Lives Matter and like tag 10 of your friends. And it became, you know, like a fun chain to do. People started doing that. Or like people just posted a black screen. And in that way, all of those moves of solidarity shows that like Black Lives Matter was getting more support, but a lot of that support was empty. Or if not empty, it was just misguided. A lot of people that knew they wanted to stand on the side of black liberation. They just didn't know how. This reminded Daniel of a lecture he'd heard about how American Jews fought in the civil rights movement. And not just by believing the civil rights movement was a good thing. Jewish lawyers fought to desegregate schools and businesses. Jewish movie producers worked to challenge anti-black stereotypes in film. Rabbis marched alongside black civil rights leaders and urged their congregants to march with them and so on. It seemed strategic and highly effective. Despite being Jewish himself, this Black-Jewish alliance was news to Daniel. He found the work of Cheryl Greenberg, a historian who studies a period of time in mid-century America called the Golden Age of Black-Jewish Relations. And so through this episode, I wanted to use the rich history of Black-Jewish relations as a sort of vehicle to explore allyship and how to be an effective and ethical one today. Because... People back then had a strategy for allyship that was really effective. And I thought it would be good to draw on it and think, what can I do today and what can other people do today? On this episode of Untextbooked, Daniel interviews Cheryl Greenberg about her book, Troubling the Waters. They talk about how a Black Jewish alliance developed how it changed over time, and the ways it was effective even when it wasn't perfectly harmonious. I'm Gabe Hostin, and you're listening to Untextbooked. Untextbooked. Your book opens with the image of Martin Luther King and Rabbi Heschel. Why is that image so captivating? And why is that what people think of when they think of Black Jewish relations? It's actually a perfect place to start because the image that you're referring to is Martin Luther King walking with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a major figure in uh, American Jewish life, who worked at the... uh, conservative rabbinical school and was a major writer and thinker. 
spoke very powerfully about the moral urgency of, of civil rights. There's one point where he says, when I march, I feel like my feet are praying, something like that. Anyway, the point is that those kinds of images that link American Jewish ethics or Jewish ethics in general to civil rights becomes a very powerful motivator of Jewish commitment toward the civil rights movement. It wasn't always American Jews expressed ethic to be in support. In fact, um, there were virtually no American Jews in the ranks of the abolitionist movement. So clearly very few Jews in the 19th century thought that Jewish ethics called for black equality. Um, and for a variety of reasons that I think are actually largely political, Jews in the 20th century start to say, wait a second, we need to be allied with this movement. So there's a real effort starting at about the late 30s and early 40s to explicitly link Jewish religious ethics to the cause of civil rights. And so, for example, when I was growing up, when you gave charity, for example, you supported your synagogue and you supported the NAACP. Supporting civil rights was practically a description of American Judaism in the 20th century. And so that's why people think of a Black-Jewish relationship, meaning a political collaboration between African-Americans and white Jewish Americans, as some sort of perfect alliance where everybody was always in sync. And there is some truth to that. That's what the picture represents. At the same time, though, there were unbelievably powerful undercurrents of tension that had to do with race and had to do with class and had to do with understandings about politics and liberalism um, that undergirded that relationship. And what that meant was that the relationship between blacks and Jews was always tense as well as collaborative. I should just say that there are, of course, lots of Jews of color, and they have been engaged in civil rights and African-American political agendas forever because, of course, they are themselves people of color. But in the Jewish, the organized Jewish community, primarily white Jews have run the organizations, have included each other in their synagogues and, and groups. And so even though there are plenty, obviously, of Jews of color, the conversation has been about white Jews who are the representatives of these Jewish organizations. You know, it's very fascinating that you say that, that, you know, sticking up for the black community, this new movement was to focus on that being part of Jewish religious practices. And I know specifically in the Jewish religion, tikkun olam means to repair the world. And so I'm increasingly seeing that being connected to fighting for civil equality. So I think it was very, very interesting that you mentioned that. Can I want to get into... Just a second, though. I'm sorry. Just to clarify. Of course. Um, I think it's very, very important. I obviously completely agree with you. But I do want to point out that while we say, we, by we, I mean this Jewish community that takes it seriously, focus on religious ethics and religion as being the centerpiece of our commitment. In fact, the Orthodox community is virtually absent in the civil rights movement. So reform and to a large extent conservative Jews identify civil rights as a, an ethical Jewish obligation, but that is not true in much of the Orthodox community. So I just want to be clear that while we think it's a religious issue, for many religious Jews, they don't see it that way. 
that's an interesting point you bring up. Why do you think it is that the more orthodox community within the Jewish community didn't take this up and didn't see it as a part of a religious duty? I think there are really, I would say, two primary concerns in the American Jewish community. One is the continuation of Judaism. And so every religious community has to grapple with which part of their tradition they're going to emphasize. And I think that the non-religious community was looking for some way to be Jewish that did not involve so much ritual. So if you're not Jewish because you're keeping kosher or whatever, then there has to be some other reason. And the reason is the ethics. If you're focused on the religious stuff, then you may be for civil rights. It's not that you're anti-civil rights. It's that they don't have to focus on that as the reason that they're Jewish. They're Jewish because they believe that God told them to do these things and they're doing them. And I think the second reason is what is in the best interests of the Jews' security. And that's equality and safety in the United States. And that's where I think it turns political. Less religious Jews and secular Jews said, okay, how can we be safe? Every minority community asked this, but for Jews, the answer was, we know that anytime there is hatred or bigotry, Jews always get it. They came to conclude that if anybody was under threat, the Jews would always be next, because that's the nature of anti-Semitism. And so it's out of a sense of self-interest, but I don't mean a narrow self-interest. I mean a broad sort of recognition that we're all in this together kind of thing, that kind of Jewish vulnerability that leads Jews who are primarily concerned about security and equality for Jews to recognize that all these efforts towards equality, all these civil rights efforts are one and that Jews have to be part of it to defend their own interests as well as everybody else's. So I also read that the recency of the Holocaust in the minds of Jewish people within the United States influenced how they participated in the civil rights movement and that it was so fresh in their minds that they felt like they saw a lot of parallels about the violences that they faced and the ones they were witnessing. Would you mind talking a little bit about this and how large of a factor you thought it was? Actually, I think it was a propellant and not a cause in that I I see this effort really started in the 1930s, before the Holocaust. And the black community had actually been asking Jewish groups to help them for quite a while. And Jewish groups had said, and this is starting in the teens, you know, the 19-teens, well, we know that these that there are problems in the African-American community, and they're really terrible, but we don't think we should get involved because we will ally ourselves with a group that's even more vulnerable than we are. And they're fairly explicit about that. So what happens is as fascism grows, as Nazism emerges, the Jewish community emphasizes the dangers to Jews even more by pointing to that and pointing to civil rights as the thing that we need to support. The African-American community, who had tried for a long time to get Jews to support them openly, pointed to the treatment of Jews in Europe to say, hey guys, you're in it too. It is in your interest as much as our interest to fight bigotry in any form. What the Holocaust does is intensify the sense in the Jewish community that the consequences of not dealing with discrimination are death camps. But I do want to emphasize that, of course, it's not like 
other groups didn't recognize this as well. So the question is, why were Jews uh, so disproportionately present involved? It's not like Christian ethics doesn't say the same thing. It's not like, right? So, um, and I think that's because in the United States, race is so important that other minority groups, including Japanese Americans, as well as white ethnics like Italian Americans, who also recognized their vulnerability, decided not to participate because they thought that their security lay most in emphasizing that they were white people. The safest thing to do is say, no, 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 we're, we're white people, we're American. And so many other white ethnic groups don't get involved, even though the, you could argue that the same agenda should be there. And it's Jews who recognize that anti-Semitism is so ubiquitous that they can't get away with that. They may say that they're white, but no one else believes them. They're always in trouble. And so they're the ones who conclude that it is in their interest to commit to this dangerous position. I want to move towards talking about the specifics of the so-called golden age, even though it wasn't exactly golden, what it was like, who were the important players, and what are the real notable examples of what the Black Jewish Alliance looked like? So to give the most obvious example, when Brown versus Board of Education was being argued the, the case for ending segregation in schools. Obviously, Jews were not segregated in schools, but every single Jewish organization filed briefs, that is, supporting statements, on behalf of uh, the Brown case. There is an example of where Jews specifically were not impacted at all by segregation, unless they were Jews of color, of course, and yet Jewish leaders and Jewish organizations felt compelled to act as Jews in order to support black civil rights. Another piece was that Jews are not a large proportion of the population. They're not even a large proportion of the white population. But of white people involved in civil rights, Jews were disproportionately there. And I also just want to emphasize that we think about many of these things nationally, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, things like that. But Many, many, many civil rights efforts were local. And in many of these cases, these were groups of African-Americans and Jews who were working together to do those local things. And I mean everything from desegregating bowling leagues to um, local medical associations. Um, there was a group of African-Americans and Jews in Hollywood that created an organization to challenge stereotypes, all kinds of stereotypes in movies. And my favorite example is in New York State. The state had all these private colleges and universities, virtually all of which discriminated in some way against African-Americans and Jews. Black and Jewish groups actually got the state to create the New York State University system in order to compensate for that kind of discrimination. So it's those kinds of efforts that, again, were not simply Jews and African-Americans, but African-Americans and white allies, largely Jewish, that made these kinds of efforts and, and made, brought these kinds of changes. So I think that's what people mean when they say this is the golden age of uh, Black-Jewish relations. What changed and why? What's interesting to me is that in many ways, nothing changed except people's attitudes. And by that, I mean that the tensions between the two communities 
were there all along. It's not like they got worse. They are exactly the same now as they were then, but now they divide us in ways that they didn't before. So what I mean is to take the combination of class and race together. When Eastern European Jews come to American, Northern American cities around the turn of the century, the 20th century, it's the same time that African Americans are moving up North in large numbers from Southern agrarian places. And both are poor. There's no question about it. It's not like Jews come as middle-class people. These are peddlers. These are poor, poor people with limited skills and limited education. And African-Americans, of course, are also have limited urban skills. These are agrarian workers and also no education because of the segregated educational system in the South. The difference is that because Jews, these Jews did have white skin, they were able to take advantage of economic opportunities that black people were closed out of. It's not that there wasn't anti-Semitism, but black people literally could not get a job because no one would hire black people. Jews could get jobs. And so already by the 20s and certainly by the 30s, you start to see these divisions where there are plenty of poor people in both communities, but there is now an emerging middle class and even upper class in the American Jewish community. It's exactly the same tensions now as before. The difference, I think, is that before there was an activist movement and an activist and an active commitment on both sides to work through those issues and yet move forward. So in your opinion, what was that tipping point? If class divisions existed, if the fact that Jewish people had access to white privilege was a problem, at what point did that become too much for the alliance to bear? I would answer that in two ways. And one, oddly, is it never becomes too much. There is never a point at which the American Jewish Congress and the NAACP don't work together. That alliance never ended. It just becomes much less public. But I think the second piece is that, they, that it does get overwhelmed in that public way. The problem is that in the 1960s, liberalism fails in that white liberals start acting more like white people than like liberals. And black people start concluding that liberal solutions are not enough. Um, in 1964, the Democratic Party has a rule that all the state delegations to the National Democratic Convention, which elects the, which chooses the presidential candidate, that they all have to be interracial. They have to be desegregated. But in Mississippi, as in much of the South, the Democratic Party is still all white. So um, a group of black organizations launches this thing called Freedom Summer, and they run a slate of candidates that they call the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is a slate of interracial candidates that they want to send to the Democratic National Convention and that they argue should be the Mississippi delegation rather than the lily white one, which violates all the Democratic Party rules. So both delegations go to the Democratic National Convention and the Mississippi Freedom Party delegation argues that they should be the ones to be credentialed. And this liberal party, the Democratic Party, says no. We're going to seat the Lily White delegation, even though they broke our own rules, even though they're, they're segregated. But we'll give you two at-large seats so you can be there. Well, needless to say, 
there was great sense that this so-called liberalism totally betrayed them. That when, it, when push came to shove, white liberals voted for whiteness over their politics, which should have said, seat the integrated party. And things like that start undermining a belief that you can work within the system. Meanwhile, Jews who are liberal are saying, no, 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 just have patience. It works. It just takes a while. Look, we've passed this legislation. Look, we've gotten this far. Isn't this great? Many black people are saying, yeah, the laws are there, but no one's enforcing it. You can say there's no discrimination, but the fact is there still is. So we need structural changes that are really far beyond what liberalism would say. We have to challenge the system itself. It's at that point that you start seeing the emergence, not like it hadn't been before, but the more public emergence of black power movements, of black nationalism, of the Panthers, of this sense that white people can't be trusted. And Jews say, wait, they're trying to ruin this. They're trying to destroy the system. They're trying to undermine liberalism. Liberalism is what we believe in because it focuses on individuals rather than groups. Whenever societies focus on groups, it always turns into anti-Semitism. So we want people to rely on individuals, merit, things like that. Black people are like, we've never been treated like individuals. That's the whole problem. So what happens by the 70s is that in places where their agendas do overlap, like concern about welfare rights, concern about immigration, concerns about genocidal violence, things like that, blacks and Jews still work together. But the public face of civil rights ebbs, and these two different views emerge, one of this black nationalist distrust of liberals side, and one on this liberals distrust of radicals side, and then things seem to fall apart. I think what you're saying about the qualms of liberalism still extend to today. So now I'd like to shift the conversation towards contemporary allyship, because I think that's what we need to take this history and learn from. To you, what does it mean to be an ally today? Right. Uh, I think there are really important lessons to be learned from this history. Uh, and one is that you can get things done even when you disagree. I think a second lesson, though, is that if you don't address those differences and don't address the roots of those differences, why we have them, we're going to end up splitting apart. Had there been a systematic conversation about why it is that Jews were able to rise in this system, this liberal system, but black people couldn't? What is it about structural racism, things built into our society that we have to challenge? So we can't just say, oh, we don't want police brutality, or we don't want more black people locked up than white. Absolutely true. But the question is, why does that happen? It's not that police are any more racist or brutal than the rest of us. It's that the structure of policing was shaped in an era of racism, slave patrols, things like that, that created a police force that is focused on protection of white people and white property. So we have to look at those systems as well. And had they done that at the time, we might be in a different place now in terms of, of um, working on civil rights. And I think another lesson is that civil rights efforts around race have to be led by people of color. So one example that where I think Jews went wrong is that they understood themselves as sort of equal strugglers. 
And it's not that Jews don't need these protections, but to be an ally means to allow the relevant group to define what the issue is and how to proceed and then to support them in that. We had then and we have now a movement that is primarily concerned with race. And as largely white people, Jews and other white allies have to remember that their job is not to run the thing, not to decide what the priorities are, not to be out in front, but to figure out how to move along the agendas of the people for whom they are fighting. And I think that's very hard. I think it's hard to lose yourself and to say, my priorities may not be your priorities. It's hard not to take leadership roles, especially when you're good at something. But the challenge is to step back a moment, acknowledge differences, really work to understand it, but acknowledge that your different perspective is not the primary one that the primary position has to be that of the people who are doing the struggling. That was an excellent way to wrap this up. Cheryl Greenberg is the author of Troubling the Waters, Black Jewish Relations in the American Century. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My, my pleasure. I just want to say, Daniel, that was those were some of the most thoughtful questions I have ever been asked in many, many times of being interviewed. That means so, so much to me. Thank you. Dr. Shell Greenberg is a history professor at Trinity College. Daniel Arditi is a freshman at Vanderbilt University, and he produced this episode. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernando Rain is our executive producer. This is our last episode of season one, but that doesn't mean a textbook is ending. We have lots of ideas for season two, and we're already at work making it happen. Keep an eye on this feed and also our social media. We're at Untextbooked on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. That's where we'll post about our next season, new merchandise, and bonus episodes. And if you like the work that we do, go to untextbook.com and click support. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.